Hey, this is Tim Cripps, and welcome to the second season of Human Behavior. To kick things off this season, I thought that we would be topical and talk about political behavior. I interviewed Eric Grunendike. He's an expert in political partisanship. He has a book entitled, Competing Motives in the Partisan Mind, How Loyalty and Responsiveness Shape Party Identification and Democracy. I also wanted to make it clear that I realize that people say climate change instead of global warming. I think that I said global warming 30 times without correcting it. Anyway, I'm hip to the phrase climate change. So without further ado, here's human behavior. So I'm speaking with Eric Grunendike today. Did I say it correctly? That's correct. <laughs> All right, great. Perfect. Which in German means green dike. I guess. Correct, correct. Or Dutch. I'm actually, it's actually Dutch. Dutch. Yes. Okay. So you, are you going to stay in, now you're with the University of Memphis and I guess you're vacationing correct. right now? Uh, my, uh, yeah, essentially. So are you going to get to teach all semester uh, from well, Utah? What's that? Are you going to get to teach all semester from Utah? We'll see. It sort of depends on how uh, things go with the university. But yeah, right now, I don't really want to have to get on a plane if I don't need to get on a plane. Um, so right. yeah, that's currently the plan. Yeah. So everything's online, though, at this point, I would guess. Everything is currently online. Correct. Yes. Is that going to go for both semesters or do you just know for the fall that that's what's happening? Oh, only, only for the fall. And frankly, we don't even know for the fall. Oh, really? Point, we're just starting remote. Um, so we'll we'll see how things go. That should be interesting. Yes. <laughs> so you are a political scientist. And um, so I just thought, you know, this is an election season. Let's talk about some stuff that uh, has to do with the behavior of people surrounding uh, political behavior. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I was looking at some of your articles, and a lot of it has to deal with partisanship. So what got you interested in that? What got me interested in this? Well, uh, it's actually, I think, uh, with a lot of people who do research, it's uh, it's social science research in particular, it starts sort of with your own experiences and your own family. And I think, like a lot of people, I had a family that was divided between Republicans and Democrats. And, you know, we'd get together at holiday dinners and... We'd end up inevitably, probably after a few glasses of wine or something, people would start talking about politics, and it would devolve into this big, fiery debate amongst my family that is not that way at all, right? It was a very mild-mannered Midwestern family, um, and they would end up getting in these huge squabbles over politics, and it just seemed really fascinating to me that this could happen so quickly, um, and it seemed to be so groupish, right? It was... You know, we started as a family in this close-knit group, and then somehow by the end of dinner, we would be clearly divided into two sides at war, um, it, largely over, you know, over over matters of identity. I think is what it often came down to. So I, I especially as I started learning more about this in college, it really became uh, something that I I was really interested in. And I was, you know, starting out grad school in the early two thousands, um, and just as a lot of the, the polarization was taking off and I could kind of see this happening. So, uh, it was sort of an exciting time to start to, to look at these things. So now what are you going to do for a living now that this isn't a problem anymore? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I will, I, people always ask me about this. It's funny. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's sort of a weird place to be as a as a political psychologist right now because you know the the all with all the horrible things going on, there are also tons of things to study. So it's actually a super exciting time to do what I do, um, and I'm collecting all sorts of data right now. Uh, and so so it's this weird situation where you're kind of you know it's kind of fun to get these really interesting effects, but then you realize what you're excited about and you you're sort of like oh my oh my gosh this is, how am i excited about this this is terrible news for our democracy but it's sort of you have to sort of uh you know live on the edge of that i guess <laughs> so tell us about partisanship where does it start um one thing just to put it out there that i've heard that about half of people's uh, partisan leanings come from genetics <laughs> <laughs> oh wow you're going right to the controversial stuff <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, there is some there is some work on genetics. I think that there's a lot of question out there about um, what to make of all of that. Um, I I think that it's really fascinating work, um, but most of my work is sort of more on the social side. And part of that is simply because I always think with the genetics research is what do we do with this, right? Like I, I'm really interested in understanding partisanship so that we can overcome the problems associated with partisanship and sort of um, uh, strengthen the good part of partisanship. And if we're only looking at genetics as a cause of partisanship, which isn't to say that the people um, who are looking at it are only interested in that, I'm sure that they have wider agendas as well, but it sort of, it sort of um, leaves us in this position where, you know, what do we really, what do we really do about this, right? So I'm interested in the, the psychological side of, the social psychological side of partisanship and particularly how that can be influenced by institutional and social contexts to make our democracy better, right? Um, so, so I would say, yeah, a lot of it's genetic. Um, you know, part of that story is that we get it from our parents um, and it's passed down and it's linked, right? It's linked to um uh ethnic groups right when we would come in and be assimilated into the united states um say in the 19th century right the the um democratic party machines on the east coast assimilated irish immigrants into the country by giving them jobs in the party machines so i always wonder with the genetic stuff how much of it mm-hmm. fit in this right yeah. how much of it is part of the story of of um assimilating particular groups into particular parties for all sorts of different reasons and not sort of this um, ideological story that always gets told. I'm, I'm very skeptical, frankly, about the link between ideology and party identification, but we can, we can get into that uh, as we go along. <laughs> okay, okay. That's kind of actually, that, that wasn't even a separation that I had thought about. So the link between, say that one more time, the link between party identification and an ideology. Ideology. Yeah. Okay. So you don't yeah. think that there's a very strong link there? Uh, no, I mean, it's, no, definitely not. Um, uh, so I guess, so I guess it helps to sort of start with what parties are. Um, parties exist to help office seekers get elected, right? That's where they came from. Uh, when the founding fathers uh, ended up founding our parties, as many people know, right? George Washington is railing against them. Hamilton and Jefferson are founding the parties and at the same time talking about how terrible partisanship is and we don't want it to be part of our democracy. But it ended up that parties were very useful organizational tools. And it was almost impossible, especially once one, once the other side starts to organize, not to organize in return, right? So it's just, 
to have politics that aren't that are just about individuals and aren't organized into groups just doesn't make sense when you're competing, right? When you're competing, so think about you know if, if you remember the TV show Survivor, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody uh, went on the show Survivor saying, oh, this is going to be a competition uh, about nature survival, and that's what we really want this to be about. But it immediately turned into who can form the voting coalition that's biggest and most durable, right? It's exactly the same thing that happened in American history. Is right. that that inevitably you form these coalitions in order to get your agenda passed, in order to keep getting elected, because of course, to get your agenda passed, you need to get elected, right? People run to groups. What's that? People run to groups. People people run to groups, yeah. So, so well, I mean, for two different reasons, right? The story that I'm telling is a strategic story, but then there's also this powerful, and this gets back to the evolution story and the genetic story is that, you know, we have an evolutionary incentive to want to be part of a group, to feel the need to belong, because there's an evolutionary advantage to, to for, survival, for survival, right? If you're alone walking in the wilderness, you might get eaten. But if you're part of a group, you can form a tribe, right. you're much safer, right? So, so there's the strategic adva- advantage to groups at the founding of our democracy that leads them to develop for strategic reasons. But once they develop, the psychological attraction and the need to belong psychologically really takes over and turns our parties into what they are today. Um, and that's why I, I, one of the really interesting things, I, I think this sort of balance between understanding what parties are as strategic coalitions, but also the psychological attachment that we have to these coalitions that might be completely irrational, right, from a strategic standpoint, um, and disconnected from our interests, that's what makes it so fascinating. Um, that I think often gets sort of swept under the rug in, in the story of partisanship and parties. Yeah, people often um, attach themselves to things that enable them to um, vote against their own interests. Mm-hmm. And I think I'll go. I'll get this wrong, and you correct me on it. But I think from what you were writing, you were trying to say that people actively work to maintain their belief in their party um, either by, well, mostly by stereotyping the other party and mm-hmm. accentuating how bad the other party is other than challenging their own beliefs. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so again, you know, identity is an important part. It's something we really want, right? Um, even regardless of whether we're willing to admit it, such a, a huge part of life is about wanting to be part of groups, particularly wanting to be part of groups that you hold in high esteem, um, and part of part of you know belonging to groups that other your friends and family are part of, feeling connected, feeling like some you're part of something larger than yourself. Uh, so this is really important. Now think about the other incentives in politics, right? So this is this is really critical to the story again, and I think often people sort of don't think about this, is that we all know, you know, we all believe in the duty of individual citizens to vote. We know that voting is important. But if you sort of put all that aside and you just think about the purely rational incentive, right? Think about, um, you know, I want lower taxes, I want more benefits from government, whatever I want, right? I want this thing that helps my material self-interest. Well, does, is voting really a, a rational way to get at that, right? At the end of the day, I know that I only have one vote to cast. 
And I, I, again, I don't, it's, you don't want to think about this because you want to believe you're a good, dutiful citizen and you don't want to think about these terms and people resist this idea. But the structural challenge for democracy is that we all really know that whether we vote or not or who we vote for, the election is going to be exactly the same, almost every election, right? The odds of any given election with any electorate that's bigger than you know, a tiny number the odds that we're going to cast the decisive vote and change the outcome of that election is essentially zero, right? So politics is fundamentally different than the marketplace, and that analogy doesn't work, right? So the idea is that in the marketplace, I know that I have to research before I buy a new phone because if I buy a phone that's really bad, it might break, it might cost too much, it might be a bad deal for me. In politics, that incentive just doesn't exist. And this is the fundamental challenge of democracy that we all should be wrestling with, right? We just can't count on the invisible hand in democracy the way we can in the market, right? If everyone pursues their self-interest in the market, things, you know, at least from a very classical Adam Smith way, right? There are lots of complications, but things things tend to work out, right? There are lots of way, ways in which at least things work out. In market market corrections and you know, right. beliefs about what's going to happen in the future and think things like that that drive what's supply and demand, you know. Right, exactly, exactly. So I have an incentive to put effort into making good decisions in the marketplace. But in politics, I know that my decision isn't decisive, right? I don't choose by myself. I choose by myself whether I buy, you know, which cell phone I buy, right, or which computer I buy, which car I buy. I make that decision. Whatever I choose, I get. Well, well, in fact, not to interrupt you, but even when you're in a state that, um, let's say that you're a Democrat and you live in Tennessee and you vote for a president and you're a Democrat, you vote for the Democrat, you know that Tennessee's not going to vote for, for the Democratic um, nominee. So this is true, but it go, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. This is true, but it goes deeper than that, right? Because I know that Tennessee is not going to come down to one vote, but I also know that Ohio isn't going to come down to one vote. Michigan, Florida, all the swing states, right? They're not going to come down to one vote. So no matter how close your state is, this incentive is still there, right? There is no state that's close enough that it's coming down to one vote. That almost never happens. So the problem is simply that in a democracy, we all in the back of our mind, whether we're consciously aware of this or not, we know that we're voting to be good citizens. We're voting because we think we should, not because we think that my vote is going to be decisive, right? My action is decisive in the marketplace. What I choose is what I get. No matter what state I live in, my action is very unlikely to be decisive in any state. Right, whether it's Ohio or whether it's Tennessee, the brightest blue or the most purple, the brightest red, whatever, it's almost certainly not going to come down to my vote, which undercuts my incentive to do my job as a citizen. Right. Right. So, basic idea that democracy should work like a market where everybody should go and pursue their interests and vote uh, so that they can get what they need from government, whether that's more government or less government or whatever your politics are. The idea is that, that that incentive structure just doesn't hold. So what fills that void, right? Why do we do what we do in politics if we don't have this rational, quote unquote, rational incentive 
to to um, uh, pursue our material self-interests in politics. Well, identity fills that void, right? People are engaging in politics because they want to signal who they are to their friends and their family and the people around them and to themselves, right? So, so when people are voting, they're not necessarily, I should say, when people are voting, they have relatively little incentive to vote their interests. And they have a lot more incentive to vote their group. So because, very little incentive to vote for your interests and a lot of incentive for your group. Correct. Okay. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that was a lot. I know there, there are lots of parts of that story. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's, again, one of the really fascinating things that we sort of need to wrestle with. And if we want to have effective institutions and make our democracy work, I just think that we, we really have to realize that we just can't count on democracy to work like a marketplace. We need to understand that people are going to be groupish mm-hmm. and this is just part of the endeavor. And we need to figure out how to make these groups work for us. And I think one of the problems right now is that, that you know there are some groups that actually represent our interests pretty well, right? If you think of yourself as a farmer or a union member, or a, you know, whatever, a member of the AARP, right? And um, an elderly person, a young person, whatever. In whatever group, you know, when you think of these types of groups that we often label as interest groups, right? Yeah. They have interests associated with them. Mm-hmm. They're built around interests. Right. So if with those groups, you're voting for your interests. That's not so bad, right? You're, you're at least something that's pretty close to your interests. Right. That's the whole reason you identify with that group. When it comes to parties or ideologies, these things are moving targets. So when you vote for the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, you're voting for an, for a group that only exists to get office seekers elected. Right. So that group will continue to move and evolve and take positions it may or may not represent your interests. It's a pretty crazy idea because this is essentially the elites who run these parties holding holding the people accountable, right? They're saying yeah. you have to vote, you have to um, vote with your party, you have to support the positions of the party, even as they evolve, suit the needs of elites. But That's why crazy. do we but why do we do that? Democracy. Is it just pe- is it peer pressure on a large scale? Is yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I would I would basically say that that's exactly what it is. Um, peer pressure and, and, you know, your own, and I guess this is why peer pressure works, your own need to be part of a group um, and identify with that group. Um, uh, feel good about yourself, feel part of, you know, connected to the people you, you know, around you. Um, yeah, so, so in fact, I just, uh, I, I have a paper with, uh, on an, where we're looking at ideology, right? So this is kind of where, again, ideology runs up against parties. Um, and we ask people, uh, uh, what? So, so we say, you know, are, are you a liberal or conservative? And we get that ahead of time. And then we say, well, what, what, what do other liberals think on these various issues? Or what do other conservatives think? So um, basically, what's the, what's the position of, that a, a Democrat, or that, a, I'm sorry, that a liberal should take on, say, abortion or 
uh, legalization of marijuana or taxes or something like that, right? And we say the same thing. We ask Republicans the same thing. And we actually pay them for, for getting the, the correct answer. In other words, the, the, and we explain that we define correct answer as the answer of the modal uh, liberal or conservative. Okay. So we give them an incentive to identify what their ideology stands for. What it turns out to be the case is if we ask them what they believe, and then we ask them these questions, we get some disconnect between what they believe and we ask those and when we ask in, in, in their beliefs about what others think they should believe in their group. Well, when you ask them what others in their group believe first, and then you ask them their positions, mm -hmm. they're likely to take the positions of their group because they feel the pre their peer pressure just thinking about it themselves. Yeah. So it speaks to your peer pressure. So, so if you had um, sort of like a generic, like do an experiment where you have a generic un partisan labeled presidential candidate and they give a speech should you go run to your sources of uh, news feed whether it's msnbc or fox news to find out what you should start thinking about that person is that the best way to go about <laughs> figuring out who to vote for yeah that's our, our current media climate is not the uh the the best situation to be in um <laughs> when when you're wrestling with the, the problems of uh partisanship and polarization no um yeah yeah i think that feeds right into the situation and, and frankly the reason we have that media climate speaks to what i'm talking about too right mm -hmm. that if people were trying to find the best information available to make the best decisions they possibly can in politics, we wouldn't have a liberal news media and a conservative news media. Those exist because of these groups, right? They exist because people want to have the information fed back to them that reinforces the idea that they are right and their group is right and they're the good guys and the other team are the bad guys, right? right. That's why this exists. That's why supply fuels demand, right? People demand media that makes them feel good about themselves and their groups, not information that helps them to vote in their self-interest or in the society's interest or whatever interest that may be. Sort of like when you're asked to write a paper and what you do as opposed to really discovering what's going on in the situation, you figure out what you believe in already and then seek out information to uh, support exactly what you're what you're looking for, what you, what it is that you've already postulated as to be the truth. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's like the, the difference between good journalism and bad journalism going on within all sorts of voters, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're, we're, it's confirmation bias. It's often called. We're looking for information that will confirm what we already believe as opposed to looking for information that will help us find, you know, the most accurate answer or the, the, the answer that will actually allow me to figure out what will lead to the best, poli uh, best, best policy outcomes, et cetera. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, and, and I should say, you, it, it sort of goes the other way too, that, um, and you, you alluded to this, one of the things that I do in some of my work on party identification is, you know, it's not just about selecting out information that confirms what you believe. There are situations where you're confronted with information that conflicts with what you believe, that conflicts with your party identification. Right. So say, um, you know, your president, the president of your party is in power and the economy is not doing well. Um, or say there's a, uh, you know, massive 
virus outbreak, for instance. Let's just pretend. <laughs> uh, just for let's just pretend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, when you have to wrestle with these sort of, when these sorts of things happen, um, or your party's watch, and again, this happens on both sides. This isn't a partisan thing. Um, that that people have an incentive to rationalize these ideas away. So oftentimes, what they'll do is they'll say, and I'm finding my research. Um, they'll use these sort of lesser of two evils arguments. So they'll say, okay, yeah, 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 fine. Things aren't going great under my party, but things would have been way worse if the other party was in power. And here are all the reasons why they're just terrible. They're all corrupt. So yeah, of course my party's not perfect, mm -hmm. but the other is worse. Um, so this leads us to a, a troubling place, right? Where people will say, okay, they're willing to distance themselves from their own party, but they still hate the other party. So we end up in this sort of spiral downward where everyone is more and more cynical about both parties, but unwilling to switch sides, and and so we get lots of problems. Well, that. another angle too that I've seen is, um, and maybe you, maybe this is what you call motivated rationalization. Is that what it is? Motivated. Motivated reasoning or rationalization? They're both yeah. Related. Yeah, I was talking to a family member who is um, very excited to be part of the conservative team. And we were talking about the um, six hundred dollars for that people are getting. Oh no! It was um, a while back. I think everybody got around twelve hundred dollars a piece, and then six hundred dollars per kid to go into um, your bank account because of the economy collapsing because everything was shut down. And just sort of jokingly, I said, well, you know, because it seemed like everybody was sort of high on it, you know, like it seemed like a good idea. And I said to him, I said, well, I guess we're all socialists and foxholes, right? <laughs> and he goes, well, I really see it as more of a rebate for the taxes I've put in. And I was like, wow, I wonder who told you that one, <laughs> you know, who's been listening to that. And is that what you mean when you talk about the motivated generalization or am I kind of off base on on what goes yeah, through a person's that, I think, mind. I think that would qualify. I mean, it's, it's difficult to identify in these sorts of situations because the difference between motivated reasoning and a true belief and a true perspective on the world is very, without an experimental context, they're very hard to distinguish, right? So it could be that you and your family member simply see the world through different ideological frameworks. And that's, in, in there, it's absolutely legitimate what both of you are saying and you're just viewing the world differently from different perspectives. Um, but the sorts of things that I do in my research is, is I, I test these things to see if they're true beliefs versus motivations. And you can tell that by if you basically, if you trick people into disagreeing with their party, or you're looking at, you look at situations where disagreements arise, and then you see a change in their reasoning, right? That's the key. So if they say, oh yeah, I, I really like my party, and, and, you know, I, I rate my party at, you know, 70 and I rate the other party at 30, right? And then you say, well, here's, isn't this a place where you disagree with your party? And they say, okay, well, yeah, maybe I rate my party at 60, but then I also rate the other party at 20, right? You <laughs> right. Well, the other party is even worse too. But the other thing that could happen is, is uh, people will reprioritize issues. So you'll say, they'll say, um, they will the, the part the economy is not doing very well right now and your party is in charge i thought that this you know what's you know doesn't this make you skeptical of what they're doing and they'll say something like well the economy is not really that important or or maybe you know uh, 
uh, the unemployment rate is not really what I care about. It's really inflation, right? Or right. overall GDP is really what matters. The stock market's really what matters. Or maybe social issues are really what matter to me. That's why I'm voting this way, right? But if you look before and after, or if you look between a treatment and control group, and you see differences between that those priorities, you can know that those things are being adjusted on the fly in order to defend their party identification. And they're not just stable beliefs that people hold going in, and they're leading them to, to different worldviews. I've seen um, polls, I guess, where... You know, they'll ask Americans basic attitude questions about health care and taxes and education. The most important things that people have to deal with on a regular basis. And pretty much, we're talking 60-70% agreement across the board on everything. Um, but getting back to what you're talking about, voting against your own interest, that's where the split comes. Everybody yeah. seems to agree on a lot of the big topics but yes. nothing seems to be able to get done going towards what is the most popular according to generic polls that don't have an r or a d or a c or a l next to them and we wind up with what we have now and people still have the same attitudes as far as like important things, like what do we do with taxes? How much taxes should there be? What do we do with education? What do we do with health care? People have very similar attitudes on what they think that the United States should be doing, but it just seems to deteriorate as soon as you put it into somebody else's hands. Exactly. You're, you're hitting on you know, one of the fundamental challenges, or one of the biggest contemporary challenges which again, I think is related to this fundamental challenge of democracy, right? We, I think it's always important to remember that we get here because of the structural challenge that's posed by democracy where we don't have a clear incentive to, do, to, to pursue our policy interests and make sure that we're holding government accountable. We, it, 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 only, it, it runs on our duty, right? Or it runs on, on the idea that we feel the duty to hold government accountable. Um, so. So yeah, um, I, the, the challenge and the frustrating thing right now in contemporary politics is that we get this polarization and partisanship run amok, um, even though on policies we agree in lots of places. Um, and, and what political science, the political science literature will, will tell you is that you know, we talk a lot about polarization, we throw that word around a lot, but when it comes to policy, what you're talking about, the the better way to describe it is actually sorting, partisan and ideological sorting, as opposed to polarization. So if you think about what polarization is, you know, if you imagine a distribution of, of say, of you know, ideological preferences, policy preferences, whatever, that goes from left to right on, on a single uh, dimension, you would think of polarization as being a bimodal distribution. Right, where there's very few people in the middle and lots of people on each of the sides. So there are kind of two clusters, two groups, two separate groups um, that really fundamentally disagree. But that's not the distribution you see. Most of the time on most policies, the, the, um, uh, uh, median, the, the modal voter is in the middle, right? There aren't two modes. There's a single modal voter um, that's in the middle of that distribution um, or the modal preference, I should say, I guess, over policies. But nobody cares what people in the middle think. <laughs> 
Well, I, I shouldn't. I wouldn't say that. It's not that nobody cares what people in the middle think. Um, there is a problem that people in the middle sometimes don't vote. Um, but but a lot of what's happening is that that if you look across these issues, for the reason why this is sorting is that that um, that people are not taking more extreme policy positions necessarily. It's that they're taking policy positions that more consistently align with their party, right? So they're not moving apart on this dimension where they're becoming super liberal or super conservative on any given policy position. Most people are kind of in the middle. They can kind of see the other side. But if you look across issues, it used to be that some people would, would you know, take liberal positions on taxes and conservative positions on guns and... Uh, liberal positions on foreign policy and conservative positions on abortion. And there would be lots of people out there who are like this, who are not very well sorted in terms of their issue positions. So they might identify with a party, but they really didn't understand the mapping of ideology and issue positions onto that party in reason, because those mappings weren't that clear because there were lots of fairly conservative Democrats in Congress and lots of fairly liberal Republicans in Congress. So everything was all a little bit more mixed up. But what's happened is that over time, things have sorted in Congress and Republicans all stand for the same thing now. And Democrats all stand for the same thing now. So the average voter can see what they're supposed to do, right? They can see what the norm of their group is. They can see that if I call myself a Democrat, it means that I have to support issues A, B, and C, or policies A, B, and C, or I'm not a good Democrat. Mm-hmm. If I'm Republican, I have to support policies X, Y, and Z, or I'm not a good Republican, and I'm not a good conservative, right? So that creates so, a couple of different scenarios for us now, because now we have not only uh, high information voters or um, or uh, well-informed voters, but we also have, are you well-informed or are you well-sorted? Because yes. I can then ask if you're a really well sorted person i can ask you what your opinion is on uh whatever contribution uh human has towards global warming and depending on what answer you give me i can answer 10 other questions that i might have asked you before so i might i know i know if you give me a certain answer on global warming then i know your attitude on taxes abortion uh you know on and on and uh, healthcare, and that's where the sorting comes in. I think that I think that what you see a lot of these days is that people are lined up exactly the same. You know, everybody has their pat answer when it comes to these really um, uh, often discussed topics like global warming or taxes. Um, people have become really, really sorted, I guess. I don't know about informed, but sorted is definitely something that I've been seeing. Yeah, you hit on another really great point. Um, um, that's exactly right. That's a good way to say it is that if now, nowadays, you know, in 1950, if I knew someone's policy preference on one issue, that wouldn't predict, I, I wouldn't be very good at guessing their policy preferences on other issues. But in 2020, if I know your policy position on one issue, I can make a pretty good guess about a lot of things that you believe. Right. Now, you're exactly right. And what's frustrating, so frustrating about this, is that this is tied up with sophistication. 
because you need to know what you need to be fairly sophisticated to know these things, right? The more you follow politics, the more likely you are to know what you're supposed to believe as a Republican or a Democrat or a liberal or a conservative. But now think about what that's doing, right? Yeah. So hope that the most sophisticated and educated and intelligent among us would be using those resources to make good decisions. But instead what we're doing, because our groups are so important to us, is we're using them, we're using that knowledge to get in line with our group, to do exactly the opposite of holding our government and our party accountable. We're getting in line with them. So the more knowledgeable people are, and you can see this very clearly, the more likely they will be to get in line with their party and their ideology, and, as you were hinting at at the end there, to be able to rationalize away any disagreement or conflict that ever arises. The smarter you are, the better you are at coming up with rationalizations that allow you to believe that you were right all along, no matter what contrary information ever comes to you. So this is the real dilemma, right? The best and brightest among us are the most likely to be deluding ourselves into following the need of the, precisely the people we're supposed to be accountable. So that's pretty scary. So how can we weaponize this? Let's move on to... <laughs> how can we weaponize it for you? Or how can important we things, yeah. Well, I guess we might have to take out the grid, right? We have to stop people from being able to look at social media and, uh, you know... Uh, quotations educate ourselves um, through the different resources that are out there now one thing I just wanted to bring up I was watching Vice I think and maybe 60 minutes I don't even know but uh, a man had made sort of a graph on Twitter of showing interconnections between self-identified liberals self-identified conservatives and was showing what their news sources was and he was trying to show um, the way that they interconnect um, mm -hmm. with each other. And what he found was that there's no interconnection. <laughs> Nobody's listening to each other. Everybody gets their source of information from a completely different source that never winds through the other sources uh, to yeah. be tempered. Yeah. Yeah, again, this this goes back to the same idea, right? So, you know, I grew up, I was in high school and in the 90s when the internet was coming on the scene, and everybody was so excited that we were entering this utopian age where information was available for us and you know everything was going to be great because we we're going to have all this information at our fingertips and and how could how could this ever go wrong right um but this speaks to the problem that we're talking about right our our democracy not not our democracy democracy in general doesn't provide us with an incentive to get the right answer, to find the truth, because we only have one vote to cast, and we know that vote is very unlikely to be decisive, so why in the world would I try to find the truth, or even what will help me to make good decisions in my benefit, when I know that my vote is very unlikely to be decisive? What will give me immediate psychological benefits is seeking out information that makes me feel like my group is right, and the other group is wrong, and how do I get that? I talk to the people who I know will agree with me. I look to the media sources I know will agree with me. And I block everybody else out, right? So, so it's, it's sort of, and it's, it's interesting. It's sort of sad and, and frustrating is that, you know, philosophy has known about this problem for a long time, right? This is, 
the enlightenment, the whole idea of the enlightenment, right, was was that, you know, we're going to find the truth. If we just think hard enough about things, we can come to the truth. And and now that we, we have this enlightened view and we have science and reason on our side and we're moving out of the dark ages, we're entering this utopia, right? And after that, people realize, well, just thinking hard probably isn't going to necessarily lead to the truth. And is there even a single truth? And there are all these philosophical questions that have been in criticisms of enlightenment thinking that have come afterwards. But the birth of the internet did exactly the same thing, right? We all said, oh my gosh, now we have the internet, it will solve all of our problems. We're all gonna go out and we're gonna seek the truth and we're gonna find the truth. Well, well, you know, is there a single truth out there? Are we motivated to find that if there is? Um, you know, that's that's the, the problem. <laughs> so what do we do? Do we just, I mean, we know these things now, so do we just sit by now and watch it all fall apart? I, I know. I hope not. I find that very frustrating that many people um, seem to think that there's nothing we can do because we, and as a political scientist, I, I think especially, you know, it's so hard to break through all of the screening. And again, because people like it, right? People who are engaged in politics right now are engaged because they like the fight. Well, and, and it's useful. I mean, if 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 you're trying to be reelected and that's one of your ways of getting reelected. Why would somebody go and talk to Eric Grunendike about, uh, you know, okay, you know, great, I'm happy that you've, you know, found all of these things out. Now, how we, can we fix it to make people vote less for me or vote for their own interests? I mean, you know, how, how do we get people back to their gut reactions to what they really want to happen? I, I can't really see how the people that are in power would even benefit or see it as a benefit to... Um, run on things that people are interested in? So I think it has to go the other direction in some ways. Um, I think that we have to create the demand before the supply of policies, right? So I think where there is room is that people are really frustrated right now. People don't like the state of politics. People don't like all the partisan bickering. They don't like all the polarization. But the way we talk about it, it is so simplistic, right? All we ever hear in this debate, or I shouldn't say all we ever hear, but so much of what we hear in this discussion is, you know, politicians saying, I'm going to overcome the partisan fray. I'm going to work across the aisle. Right. If we talk about it in the media, that's sort of the message that gets across too. Um, but there are lots of, but the, so the problem is, and again, this is one of these fundamental things that, that is a challenge for democracy. So I'm not going to say it's easy, but but that we have to recognize that the issue is with our institutions that create the incentives for people to act, not with people's innate character. Mm -hmm. So in psychology, this is known as the fundamental attribution error or correspondence bias, right? We have a tendency as humans to look at people's actions and think, oh, they did a nice thing. They must be a nice person. They did a bad thing, or they, maybe they, they stole something. So they must be a bad person, and they have bad morals and bad character, right? And we think about things in those terms, that it must just be about who they are. We forget about the incentive structures that are provided, right? Maybe they stole something because they need to feed their family, right? Yeah. Um, there are lots of, you know, maybe they, you know, they got in a fight because the other person started it, right? Right. Um, 
there so so we need to think about the larger social structural context and if we think about that at we start to realize that it's not that politicians are all bad people or all corrupt right we see it looks like people go in and they have all these great ideas and hope and then they go in and they become corrupt well it's not that so much that they change their personalities change it's that we've created a system and a structure in which people have to get behind the party in particular this is there are lots of these things that happen but one of the reasons why people talk about working across party lines and then go into congress and never work across party lines is because they can't right <laughs> the rules of congress prevent this from happening they get punished for doing this and then they get ousted from congress so the people who try to work across party lines end up getting primaried out yeah. or they not getting leadership positions in congress so they have less of a voice the people who who keep getting elected who win primaries who get donations get support move up in the party leadership are people who go along with what the party does and the reason we have that is because that is the institutional structure we've set up so that was a long-winded way of saying we're always talking about character and we're not talking about institutions if we want to fix the party problem in of partisanship um, and polarization one thing we could look at is the rules in congress so in the 19th century, the 1800s, we had massive polarization in Congress. Republicans never voted with Democrats. Democrats never voted with Republicans. And that's because the party leadership was very, very powerful at that time because of the rules in Congress. In 1910, the progressive wing of the Republican Party from the Midwest said, we're sick of getting pushed around and forced to vote the Republican Party line uh, all the time. We don't agree with these things and we're sick of this. So we're going to go. We're going to um, go against our party, and we're going to vote with the Democrats to change the rules in Congress. It's not a law; it's just the rules in Congress, right? right. We're going to change the rules in Congress, strip the party leader, the Speaker of the House, of his powers to force us to get in line, so that we don't have to vote all the time with our party when we don't want to. We will most of the time. We don't want to have to do it all the time. Sometimes we want to vote other ways. You know, we want other legislation to come to the floor that gets that gets blocked out that we never even get to talk about. So we're going to strip the speaker of his powers. This lasted until the 1970s. During that era, we were not very polarized as a country. Right. In the way that we are now, in the way that we were in the 19th century. In 1974, the Democrats who were then by then in power and had control of the house said you know we're becoming a more progressive party and there are a lot of progressives in the party and then we have this southern wing of southern conservatives and segregationists and these people who just are completely different from the people who are being elected now these younger democrats coming in um in the 60s and 70s and they have all the these these old southern democrats have all the powerful committee positions now that the leadership has been stripped of their power and they're not voting with the party half the time they're voting with the republicans and why are we allowing this to happen we're the majority in the party now this young progressive part of the democratic party we don't want to be bossed around by these committee chairs we want to run our own party why should we not be able to run our own party so they re-empowered the house speakership to punish people for not being in line with their party this led to some sorting and there were lots of there are lots of things that happen, but, but the main point is that 
the party leadership again has a stranglehold over the legislators in Congress in both parties. And then the, when the Republicans took control in the 90s, they kept up with this and they kept the stranglehold over power of their party. So the, the point, again, this is long-winded, but the point is that a simple rule change in Congress could allow people to not vote with their party all the time and allow different coalitions to develop and allow people to cross party lines and allow things to get messy and again in the way that they were prior to the 1970s and make things a little bit more confusing and ambiguous for voters and force them to sort out, well, well, what do I actually believe? Right, not just what is my party's position, yeah. but you know, what's in my interest? What do what you know? What do I want? What policies do I want to support? So there are lots of these sorts of institutional things that we don't talk about. We're always talking about people and character, and we're not talking about basic things like, hey, why does the speaker have so much power? <laughs> do you <laughs> see? Do you see anything like that happening now? The, I, I, the the closest thing I've heard to that, which I don't even know if it's true or not, but from what I recall after, what year is it now? 2020, so 2018, midterm elections, my understanding was that Nancy Pelosi got um, the speakership by making a deal with more progressive people in her party that she would step down after four years. Is that correct? So there is, so this is another thing that's really fascinating right now that I've written some on is that there is, um, there are divisions arising within the parties right now, right? So again, we're focused so much on polarization. And when we think about polarization, we think about these two separate groups that are becoming more and more um, solidified in themselves, right? So Republicans are so solid and Democrats are so solid when you think of things in terms of polarization, right? But then when you think about things within parties, we realize there's a big division in the Democratic Party right now between the establishment and the left wing. And the same thing with the Trump Republicans versus the never Trumpers um, on that side, right? So there's a lot of internal division and this spills out to some degree within the electorate as well. There are these groups that are very aligned and very polarized in liking what their party is doing um, when it's at its most extreme. But the, so there's this, this um, spreading of the distribution of how people feel toward the two parties, right? Mm-hmm. There are some people who are, who are saying, I love my party and I hate the other party more than ever. But it's not becoming bimodal. It's just spreading out. There are all these people still in the middle of the distribution who are kind of frustrated with what's going on in their party and still frustrated with what's going on in the other party because that party's moving even farther away, but they don't really have anywhere to go, right? Because it's not like, you know, the way we usually think about it is, well, you move along this spectrum, and if I'm not happy with my party, well, then I'll move toward the other party. But if both parties are becoming more extreme, there's nowhere for these people to go. Will there ever be a third party? Or a fourth okay. party, or a fifth party. Right, right. right. Um, <coughs> one of the things I love talking about with my students. So our system, so it depends on what you mean by that. Well, I mean, I guess there are other parties, but I mean relevant well, parties. Right, right. A, a, a dominant party. So Right. <laughs> right. Do- dominant. Right. Yeah. Our system is structured in a way that creates, again, mass incentives. The institutions we have 
create strategic incentives for ambitious office seekers to coalesce coalesce into two parties, right? Um, This isn't the case in all systems. Again, if we want to change things, this could be something we would talk about. If we want more parties, we need to change our electoral institutions and we could have more parties tomorrow. We could, it would be very easy to have more parties if we change our institutions. But what's the incentive? If you're on one team, why, why say, hey, let's split our team in two and be in the wilderness for the next uh, 40 years? Exactly. So one of the things that when I, when I talk to people about partisanship and parties that they always say is, man, I wish we had more options. So again, I think there is demand for it, but that demand needs to sort of be created, right? That needs to come from the grassroots. For exactly the reasons you're saying, politicians aren't going to um, say, hey, why don't we change our constitution so that we have multiple parties when they're already in power and benefiting from the current structure, right? So it needs to be a grassroots movement, which again is a challenge, but if we have enough people, if we can spread the information, people do seem to want this. So mm-hmm. so the key is that we have winner-take-all uh, districts, single-member, simple plurality districts. So what that means is there's always a winner, right? There, that, that one party wins or the other party wins. So even if it's, you know, 49.5% to 50% of the vote, 50.5% wins and gets the whole district. Yeah. And then nine and a half percent of that district is really frustrated. Mm-hmm. What you can do it is to allocate seats proportionally. So instead of just having one seat from that district, say have a bigger district and have 10 seats in that district. So that if you get 10% of the votes, you get one seat. If you get 30% of the votes, you get three seats, right? So that means that, you know, if it's a 60-40 allocation of votes, one party will get six seats and the other party will get four seats. In a single member simple plurality system, this party that gets 60% of the votes gets all the representation Mm -hmm. of the area, right? So the key is you can't allow the vote to be divided because you've got to get that majority. Mm -hmm. So for instance, think about the 2000 election, right? Um, Gore may very well have won that election if it wasn't for Nader and the Green Party. So the Democratic Party has an incentive and has since then to make deals with those people and say, look, come on, we're both basically on the same side in that maybe you're a little more to the left. You certainly don't want the Republicans to win. So just join our party, right? Run as a Democrat, be part of our coalition. We'll come to you a little bit, but do not run as a third party. Republicans have the same thing going on. I mean, look at Trump, for instance, Mm -hmm. right? Trump is not, you know, he (laughs) The Republican Party has changed so much since yeah. 2016. He is not anything like the conservative, the people calling themselves conservatives no. prior to 2016. Right. Probably he could have run as a populist candidate for a populist party. Mm-hmm. But he do that. He would have just divided the votes between conservatives and the Republican Party and the populists, whatever they want to call themselves, and then Democrats would have won in a landslide. Instead... He ran as a populist candidate, claimed he was a conservative, whatever, because whatever, what do these labels mean? Moving targets, ran as a Republican. It's a moving target. What does it mean to be a Republican? It doesn't matter. He happened to win because of a crazy situation in the primary where they had lots of people running against him um, and they split the vote in lots of weird ways. Um, So he becomes the standard bearer. He wins office, right? So the point is there's not much incentive to run as a third party because you're just splitting the vote 
it makes much more sense to just go into one of the existing parties, take it over, because it can stand for anything, right? right. Parties, what they stand for has evolved over time. The notions of what it means to be a liberal and conservative have evolved over time. And what we've learned today is that if you take it over and you change, you know, the party, people will just change their attitudes to make sure that they fit into whatever you're saying anyway. And that's, that's exactly right. And that's what's very frustrating. Exactly. Exactly. So what have we learned today? (laughs) (laughs) That I, I would say the, the sort of the themes that I try to make sure that people understand are that uh, democracy isn't isn't an efficient market. Or democracy isn't a market, right? It's more like a commons than a market. Yeah. Uh, put it in sort of economic terms that it's about duty and cooperation and working together and classic civic republicanism, small r civic republicanism, the idea of being part of a community and doing what and it, it relies on it runs on this idea of doing what we need to do to make the system work. We can't simply rely on people to vote their interests because structurally, they just don't have that much incentive. And when you don't have much of a structural incentive, group identity comes in and fills that void and that ends up being what predicts behavior. Um, Sort of an offshoot of that is that we need to think more about institutions, that, that it's not just about people's personalities and character, it's about institutions, and that's what we should be talking about if we really want to fix our problems, is, is what, not, not who are the good guys and who are the bad guys and, and why are politicians all so corrupt and how can we get better people in. It's how can we create institutions that incentivize good people to run and incentivize those people to continue to support those ideas um, and be able to voice those ideas once they're in office and not get forced to fall into party lines and just act like they're part of a group. Um, you know, how do we create institutions that will that will work for us and, and, and give people the sorts of incentives that we want them to have in government? So, um, I don't I know. Can you are... answer that for me in a sentence or two? Because I... <laughs> um, so institutions, uh, yeah, I, I'll say really quickly, I mean, I mentioned rules in Congress are a big one. I would say redistricting is another one, which isn't just about de- uh, gerrymandering. It's about thinking fundamentally about what we want districts to represent, whether we um, want them to be um, more homogenous or whether we want to prioritize more competition. Um, uh, that's a big one. Uh, uh, ranked choice voting, but not just in general elections, in primaries. We just talked about Trump. Um, you know, Trump might have very well been the least liked candidate of the majority of Republicans until the 2016 primaries, mm-hmm. right? In other words, if instead of voting for your favorite candidate, you might have, people would have voted for their least favorite candidate, right? So just, so identify who you like least, who you don't want to get the presidency. Yeah. He have won the negative primary, right? He very, very well have been the person the majority of Republicans said was their last choice. But because of the, the structure of things, because he had a small, intense group of people supporting him, and the rest of the vote was divided between more normal Republicans, he ended up winning because he had this solid base of, small, solid base of support. Ranked choice voting in primaries would prevent that from happening. Again, another institutional solution um, um, to our problems, potentially. So, um, and there, there are probably more of them, and if I thought more about it, but off the top of my head, those are, those are three big ones that just don't get talked about that much that would 
solve a lot of problems. Well, I think the one thing that we can both be happy about is that we do, even though there's hundreds of millions of people in the United States, I think that we can truly say that this election season we have just two perfect choices to choose from and that uh, we can at least hang our hats on that, that uh, out of uh, out of all the people that are in America, we found the two best candidates we could have possibly found. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, I would say this, I would say this. If you are frustrated with the choices available to you, um, burning it all down is not the only option, right? There are lots of fixes that can't, there are lots of things, you know, if you want more parties, if you want more ideological diversity, if you want a process that will select the different, different kinds of candidates, there are tons of solutions out there. If you do your research, um, if you, you know, take some political science classes, talk to the right people. Um, I, I think the, you know, the idea of, you know, status quo versus burning it all down is just a really frustrating um, dichotomy that we don't have to find ourselves in. Um, so, so I guess my message to people would be, if you're frustrated, there are other options. And we are in the heat of all of this right now, especially when you talk about burning things down right at this moment. Do you see any movement towards some of the solutions that you were talking about? Um, toward those specific solutions, I don't see a ton of movement toward because I don't think that we're talking about them enough. Um, you know, I think that we're, again, we're always talking about character, we're talking about, you know, so much of it, again, is, is this fundamental attribution error. We're talking about uh, corruption, and we're talking about conspiracies on both sides, right? That it's, this, there must be some evil cabal of people on the left or on the right who are keeping us all down and who are, who are screwing us over. But it's not so much that, it's that, that we have institutions that create incentives for people to act in particular ways that we might not like. But we can change those institutions if we recognize the problems and we demand that change. Um, so, so I think that's um, one of the things that, that we uh, need to recognize. Now I'm, I'm blank, I'm forgetting what originally your question was. But <laughs> um, Well, Eric Grunendyke, thanks for coming on today. And do you have any do you have a website or Twitter or anything that uh, where people can follow you? And I'm not a big uh, Twitter person. I am technically on. I don't tweet a whole lot, but uh, but yeah. Um, I, basically, if you Google me, uh, my my website will come up. It's just a simple Google Sites website. You can uh, um, you can see my research, and I'm always happy to talk to people about these things. I'm 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 pretty excited about the idea of you know actually addressing the problems that we're worried about as opposed to uh the things that we often end up fighting about so so thanks for giving me an opportunity to do that well thanks again and um maybe we can do this again sometime after the election's over and see what happens yeah yeah sounds fun (laughs) all right thanks a lot